Hello and welcome everybody to the first episode of the Smart Healthcare Podcast. It is my honor to introduce the show's inaugural guest, Dr. Bob Rogers. Bob is a fascinating person who has done quite a bit to facilitate the use of machine learning and data science in industry. Before working in the healthcare field, Bob trained as a physicist, having done his undergrad at UC Berkeley and his PhD at Harvard University. After completing his PhD, Bob went on to the corporate world, where he worked as a senior member at several companies. And eventually, he became the chief data scientist for analytics and AI solutions at Intel. In addition, he also founded a few companies of his own. In fact, one of the companies he helped found, a healthcare AI firm called Apixio, was recently acquired. In addition to his work in business, Bob is also an author. Previous titles he either co-wrote or contributed to include Artificial Neural Networks, Forecasting Time Series, and Demystifying Big Data and Machine Learning for Healthcare. Bob also has an upcoming book titled Demystifying AI for the Enterprise, where he and his co-authors will discuss the central concepts of AI and how to apply them most effectively to industry. If you're curious, I will leave a link to it in the episode notes, as well as on our website www.smarthealthcarepodcast.com. At the time of this recording, Bob sits as the co-founder of an AI-driven supply chain optimization company called OII. In addition to this, he's an advisory board member at the Harvard Institute for Applied Computational Science. He also serves as an expert in residence for the UCSF Center for Digital Health Innovation, where he is working on a program known as Beekeeper AI topic for today's interview. So without further ado, it's time to get smart. Bob, it's great to have you on the show. So, you know, obviously we could sit here for hours talking about all the projects you've been involved on, you know, with big data and machine learning and AI and how they've improved industries like healthcare. Uh, but one of the ones I really want to focus on today is your project at the UCSF Center for Digital Healthcare Innovation, where you are designing a, a healthcare AI platform known as Beekeeper AI. So before we go too deep, um, could you briefly explain to the audience what exactly Beekeeper AI does and why it was developed and what problem were you trying to solve? Yeah, of course. Thanks, Matthew. And it's a pleasure to be here. Um, so Beekeeper AI started uh, when we were working with GE to create the world's first FDA cleared AI on a medical device. This was a suite of algorithms that could detect emergent conditions in the chest X-rays of ICU patients and could uh, speed the, the identification and processing of those findings to save lives in the ICU. Uh, what we what we, you know, we built the models using uh, a variety of data, UCSF primarily on our side. And um, while building models to detect uh, health conditions in x-rays is challenging, what we realized is in order to get through the FDA process, we needed to be able to prove that the algorithms were generalizable. And that turned out to be a very, very heavy lift. The challenge was the FDA wanted to see the performance of the algorithm of data in the wild from five different locations around the country. So they had a really good representation of different kinds of patients, different care settings, and accessing that data was extremely difficult. 
difficult and also quite expensive. So we started thinking about this. Why is it so hard to prove that an algorithm can save lives and, and get access to this data? And it turns out, you know, data has real challenges. Things like, uh, you know, privacy is a concern. Uh, HIPAA as a, just as a regulatory obstacle is a concern. There are also financial concerns. Organizations that have large amounts of healthcare data consider it an asset. Yet, if you give somebody your data, you've sort of lost the value of that asset because it's kind of out there. Um, so what we realized is we needed to change the conversation and, um, and really, rather than talk about sharing data, we needed to talk about ways to prove algorithms work without moving data. So the data always stays with the data stewards um, in the data steward system that you never expose any data to the algorithm developer and that you also don't expose the algorithm to the data steward. So if you're going to have the algorithm come to the data, you don't want your algorithm that you've just spent millions of dollars to create to just be out there where anybody at the health system could see it. So that was the problem set up. And then the solution turns out to be using technologies called confidential computing. And so what that does is it allows you to set up a, um, a computing enclave. That is a place where you can do, do compute on data in the data stewards infrastructure. Usually it's their cloud infrastructure. So they've got a, a place where they can do HIPAA compliant computations on PHI, so patient, patient data in the cloud. And you set up a secure computing enclave, which actually takes an encrypted algorithm and then stores an encrypted algorithm in there, takes the data and encrypts that, puts it in there. And once the vault is sealed with the data and the algorithm in it, then the encryption is, is released and the calculation is done and the performance report is the only thing that come out, can come out of the enclave. And so it's, it's kind of a magic trick in the sense that you're able to do this computing without anybody seeing anything and yet you get this meaningful report. So that's Beekeeper. I've sort of given you a big long explanation from the problem to the solution, but uh, that's that's the idea. And I can tell you a little bit more about how it works mechanically, but um, but it, it it allows algorithms to be tested on on data without anybody seeing anything. So by that, so if if you can't, so I guess if your all of your data is protected and anything else, and it's very hard to access. You know, how do you test a platform like that? And, you know, how do you ensure that it's doing what you're intending it to do and how has it performed? Yeah, great question. So the answer is we've, we've gotten to the point where we've built an MVP. Now the MVP allows an algorithm developer to encrypt an algorithm in their infrastructure with their keys and transmit it into a beekeeper core node. The beekeeper core node then has for the MVP transmitted the algorithm to UCSF, Azure infrastructure, and also to UC Davis, and uh, you can you know you can track through logging the fact that the 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 algorithm and the data stay encrypted throughout the process until the enclave is is sealed. Um, and and what we found is when when you do this, you actually get the results that you expected. The performance reports come out. You know that one plus one equals two. So 
analytically, there's no approximation. That ends up being a real important point because there are other ways to protect data and algorithms. For example, using homomorphic encryption, which is uh, an extremely cool encryption technology that allows you to operate on encrypted data without ever decrypting it at all. But the challenge is some algorithms actually are not exact under homomorphic encryption. So the beekeeper technology is 100% exact. As long as the decryption happens inside the enclave, the computing happens just as if it would have happened anywhere else. Um, the other thing that we're able to do is we've gone through quite a lot of HIPAA compliance auditing. So we've got, gotten a, uh, a complete certificate uh, for UCSF from a third party auditor that went through all of our stack, all of our processes, even the processes at, at the beekeeper company to ensure that, that we're HIPAA compliant. And in fact, when we, uh, when we shared that with the uh, chief uh, security officer at UCSF, he said it was the best HIPAA compliance report he'd ever seen. So, I mean, we're, we're making sure that things are watertight. And then the final thing that we haven't done yet, but which we will do is we will be doing some external um, pen testing. So penetration testing from a third party that is actually going in and trying to find ways to, to, um, to hack in. Um, the, other, the other thing that's interesting about the security model is suppose one of the algorithm developers was actually someone who had nefarious intent. And they said, oh yeah, yeah, this algorithm is gonna detect uh, you know, this, this algorithm is going to detect uh, tumors in chest x-rays. But what it was really intended to do was to export data from this chest x-ray data set. The way the enclave is constructed, it's a sealed vault. Um, actually, nothing gets out except the validation report. So literally, we can take an algorithm that's absolutely 100% a Trojan horse and no harm comes from, use, from, from running that algorithm at all. And of course, we do plenty to vet the various counterparties, but it's, it's, a very, um, it's a very interesting, we call it zero trust because literally the data, data stewards don't need to trust us or the algo developers, and then same for, for algo developers and for us. So then Beekeeper basically is, it's a platform that allows you to, in, so the, data stewards and the uh, algorithm developers to kind of interact and work together almost and without having, you know, the HIPAA problems and the data. Yes. Stuff. Okay. Their stuff can come together, but all the activities happen at arm's length. In fact, some of the magic is that we're creating ways to allow things like, you know, in order for the data to work with the algorithm, it needs to be transformed into the right shape. Uh, it needs to, um, it needs to be annotated. So for instance, if we're looking for tumors and chest X-rays, you need a data set of chest X-rays of the right type that don't have tumors and then a data set that does. Somebody at the data steward or under the supervision of the data steward needs to ensure that the, that the transformation and the annotation is done properly to the spec of the algo developer. So the algo developer says, hey, I need 256 by 256 uh, pixel x-rays. I need, I need certain types of, of cancers or tumors annotated and et cetera, et cetera. Those things are carried out by the data steward, but with facilitation from Beekeeper. So there's a, there's a piece of the process, which is we're facilitating this arm's length 
interaction between the data steward and the algo developer so that they don't need to say, oh, okay, fine, come in and look at our data and fiddle around and show us what to do. I get it. And and you do that facilitation through just the uh, what method? So it's a great it's a great question. Right now, we've got a, a number of tools that we're developing to actually, for instance, we're connected, Beekeeper is connected into some annotation tools. So image annotation, data annotation, so that there are there are easy ways for the data steward to annotate the data, sort of following the most secure process as possible. On the data transformation side, for certain types of data, we've already written some tools that allow the data steward to transform. In many cases, data stewards are actually very good at working on their own data. You know, the the ophthalmology department at UCSF, who we've worked with, they know how to extract their images from their different devices and transform them and tweak them around. So it becomes really a matter of us collecting the requirements from the algo developer Mm -hmm and communicating them very, very clearly and making sure that the, that the data steward is able to do it. So it's a mix of making sure that the right communications happen and then also providing some tools to facilitate doing those steps. So Beekeeper is basically just like a, it's a intermediary that uh, it, it basically acts for a conf- as a confidential pathway to transform yes. you know, like information and knowledge. Exactly. It's we we like to call it a trust platform because it really it really makes it possible to to bring data and algorithms together in a in a way that that um, you know no it's a, ironically a trust platform that's zero trust. <laughs> oh, the irony! Yes. Um, and so it almost from what you're what you've described, it almost sounds a little bit like of a blockchain type of thing. S- yeah. So, so when it, it's, it's not, um, it's not based on blockchain, we actually very explicitly mm-hmm. what the, 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 um, so the analog for blockchain, you know, you have, you have um, your trust is distributed through, um, you know, multiple public entities. So there's no single holder of trust and there's sort of a, a public mm-hmm. validation in this case, the, um, the trust, there's, there's a certain amount of trust in the structure of the, uh, the way the beekeeper nodes work. That is, you assume that y- you, you need to be able to expect that encryption is, is real. That is, you know, if something is encrypted with a key, it really is encrypted. The, the, the way we guarantee that is that, it, for instance, the algor- algorithm encryption happens in the infrastructure of the algorithm developer. So they're actually seeing it happen using tools that they're used to using. Um, so what we've, so we're not creating, um, you know, a sort of a distributed trust model so much as we're, we're creating a distributed computing model. And then it's the tracking of the encryption keys that mm-hmm. really gives us the ability to secure everything. Ah, okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. So then, for instance, yeah, yeah, for instance, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, For instance, the the secure enclave, that algorithm that was, that was, that was encrypted using the customer's key gets, gets um, merged with a key that can only be created by the hardware in the secure enclave. So in other words, even if you had the, 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 the algorithm developers key for some reason, Suppose I hacked the algorithm developer's mm-hmm. system and I got the password for the for their encryption key. Unless 
I was unlocking the algorithm inside the secure enclave, I wouldn't be able to use the encryption key. It's actually, it's an encryption that's married mm -hmm. with, the, with the attestation of the secure enclave. I'm actually glad you're asking this because this is the first interview that that has come up. So excellent questions. Um, you really got to something that I haven't had been able to really expose before, this idea that even if, even if you had the algorithm developer's keys for some reason, you know, some, you know, social, you know, a phishing attack or something, mm -hmm. you still can't decrypt it because it's been encrypted with this mix of their key and the attestation key mm -hmm. for that exact enclave or, or enclaves in some cases, but it's very, very specific. So what you've done is basically built a system of fail safe on fail safe. Yes. Okay. Which was as dangerous to stay in security because there's always some way someone can get in somewhere, but um, it is it is certainly a place where um, we've crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's and, and, and very explicitly created um, security from the ground up. One of the things mm -hmm. that uh, a chief uh, security officer from another health institution told us is, you know, something like, I really applaud you because you're the first uh, the first technical platform I've ever seen where security was was thought of at the design level instead of as a series of band-aids to be applied on top. And and we were pretty we were pretty proud of that statement because that's that's been our intent all along. Mm -hmm. So then um, you know we've so we've talked about basically the the how Beekeeper basically does its best to ensure a bi-directional confidentiality of information. Um, how does that have the potential to change the way you know that digital healthcare progresses, and where do you see the next step? So there's, so there's. This is a great question, and I'm I'm excited about it. There, there's the initial target, which is we are about to unlock a huge flood of algorithms that can get proven to be either clinically valid or not clinically valid. I mean, if you if you look at all the papers in healthcare AI there are thousands and thousands of algorithms that have been developed. The number of de novo AI applications that have been approved by the FDA is two. Wow. And then there are tens of algorithms that have some, somehow, you know, usually they're, they're operational, they're not de novo algorithms. So the, the path from developing an algorithm to getting that algorithm to a state of accepted generalizability, either by the FDA or by, you know, the European Union in a CE mark, or simply by market acceptance. That is, we've seen enough evidence that we trust that it's a real generalized algorithm that works for the patient population. That, that barrier is huge, and it has to do with not being able to access data in a, in a sensible way. So we think that we're going to create a huge flood of algorithms that have been validated for use in the clinic and can start to be deployed. And then the next phase of that, which we think is extremely interesting, is that, and in fact, it, it's, it, it's, it's related to a product we called escrow, <clears throat> excuse me, escrow AI. You can take an algorithm and put it in a beekeeper enclave and use it not to validate the algorithm, but to actually use the algorithm to generate the inferences that it's supposed to generate in a way that still protects the algorithm, but makes it, makes it, uh, makes it safe to, 
to put the data in. So in other words, it's a replicable way to deploy AI algorithms in health systems that kind of comes with a ready-made and trusted security platform, both for the, a for the data and the uh, algorithm. So what we think that's gonna do is really also expand the ability of organizations to try out algorithms so that they can see for themselves. I mean, it's, it's really a mechanism that is secure, but also try before you buy. That is, hey, you know, I, I, can't, I can't like get full. In fact, I've seen this at, at UCSF many times. I have an algorithm I wanna try. The algorithm developer will not give me their source code, so I can't deploy it in my infrastructure. But I can't go through the entire regulatory process of getting permission to send UCSF data to that algorithm developer's cloud API. So I'm stuck. Beekeeper allows them to deploy a secure container in UCSF infrastructure. I can test it on my data and make a decision for myself whether I think the algorithm is ready to be used inside the UCSF system. And so we, we think it's going to, you know, by factors of, of I think hundreds, increase the, 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 path, the, the throughput from conception to algorithms at the bedside. Obviously, that can have a huge impact on patient outcomes and on clinicians' lives. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing you say is that this has basically opened the floodgates to, to uh, more innovation in terms of algorithms and what you can do and uh, getting things by. 100%, 100%. And, you know, the... And, and, and I, th I liked how you, you said innovation because it really does, when, when the barriers are lower, you can start to try things that you couldn't have done before, right? If it's gonna take $5 million to get a product to a certain point in the market and you're, and you're just not sure if it's gonna make money, you're not gonna take that bet. But if you can spend you know, $100,000 to build a model and test it out, then things start to, start to uh, be much more creative and, and partners come together. So that's our, that's our, that's our expectation for beekeeper. Wonderful. So, you know, I want to take a break from, you know, the, the beekeeper itself uh, and go to you. Um, your background is not exactly what one would say is conventional in healthcare, uh, having been focused on physics for most of your uh, college and graduate school careers. Um, how did you wind up in this field? Um, do you think that coming from a non-healthcare background gave you an advantage to think and do things differently? I mean, especially you know, with projects like Beekeeper, which are kind of pushing that boundary. It, 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 so to go in backwards order, it absolutely has given me a, a certain kind of advantage to come from a different perspective. Um, two years ago, when I was earlier in my time at UCSF, a doctor, with some influence came up to me and said, we've tried AI and it didn't work. So, you know, being coming from a physics background and, and having the experience that I have allows me to um, think of things in, in different, I can frame the question in a different way, right? And, uh, you know, when I think about AI algorithms, it's, it's always, what is, what is a question that I could build an algorithm to answer. That's very analogous to the process in physics where you may take a very complex overall system 
and break it down into little tiny pieces that you can understand and then put those elemental components together. So there's, there's definitely, I think, real advantages to that type of, of training. And the way, the way I got into it was that I, um, I co-founded in two, after my postdoc, I uh, wrote a book on time series forecasting with artificial neural networks. That was just the result of getting sort of a bug in my ear about, about this cool way of computing the way the brain computes. And I thought there might be something to it. I'm happy to say, you know, 30 years later, 40 years later, I guess 30 years later, it, it turned out to be um, a good instinct. Anyway, I wrote this book that led to um, co-founding a quantitative futures hedge fund, which I co-ran with a couple partners for 12 years. But one of my partners had had a number of successful startups in healthcare, in the medical device space. And um, he also, by the way, was the original inventor of fax technology. So really, really interesting story, an amazing guy. He sadly passed away earlier this, this year. Um, his name was Paul Epstein or, or Pablo Epstein. Uh, absolutely wonderful fellow, incredibly creative. Anyway, he had these amazing stories about, you know, saving patients' lives and building this technology and all the struggles of getting things through. And so toward the end of my hedge fund career where I was thinking I really wanted to do something more human for my career, um, his experiences really influenced me to think about how could I refocus myself in healthcare and just by by essentially luck, I was able to become a product manager for a medical device and, um, and start to really retune myself in, uh, in healthcare terms. Of course, the disadvantages are you have to learn a lot of, a lot of lingo mm -hmm. and learn how to communicate with doctors, which they, you know, they have, it's a very, you know, they, they, they speak in their own language and they think about things in their own way. And, and it's, you, you, you have to learn to, to, to live in that world, mm -hmm. which is fun. So it was, a, it was a journey, but definitely one that was interesting yes. and um, gave you the skills necessary to kind of to come at things from different angles. And yes, absolutely. I mean, again, that, that the fundamental process of physics is taking complex systems and breaking down to understand the, mm -hmm. the, the elemental pieces. And I think that's, that's particularly germane to um, to, for instance, operational AI, where you're trying to make some piece of a process faster, more efficient, or surface information quickly. I mean, it's just a very narrow slice. You solve that slice, and that can have a huge impact on the overall process. Interesting. So, kind of on that thread, you know, with programs like Beekeeper coming about. And you know, an increasing move towards digital health, um, and, and as well as kind of the merging of a lot of things, you know, with computer science and biology and all these other things. Um, you know, what, how, how will the role of doctors and healthcare providers have to shift? Well, I think, I think so. Great question. And it's something we're thinking about at UCSF at the Center for Digital Health Innovation every day. Um, the, big, the big themes that we're seeing are things like providing more care outside the traditional care environment. So 
outside the office, outside the hospital? How do you, how do you extend care to be not just those rare times when you're in a healthcare setting, but throughout your entire life? So we have, we have programs around virtual care where we're doing some monitoring of patients. Some of that is technical monitoring, things like, you know, for lung transplant patients, they use a res, uh, you know, a respirometer to, to measure their airflow. Um, you know, you can measure things like blood pressures for hypertensives. So there's that. And then, um, but there's also actually interacting with patients through text and through other communication means and maintaining more, um, more connection with the patient. So then what does that mean for the doctor? Well, they're, they're having, uh, their day is a, a mix of different kinds of interactions. Now they're not sitting down in front of a patient and just doing like looking at the patient, listening and, you know, asking some questions. Some of it is also um, looking through these, these extracts of what is, um, what is coming from these remote patients. And then interestingly, at least, you know, I think this is, this is a place where these technologies are going to evolve, providing feedback as algorithms make assertions about patients. Doctors are making, providing feedback on that. And that's tuning how the system interacts with the patient and what information gets surfaced to the doctor. So, so that's a whole area where, you know, things are shifting. So it's not so much just patient in front of you. Um, but also interacting with this sort of um, extra, you know, dimension of, of, of monitoring. And, and of course, no, no doctor wants like patients' blood pressure sent to them five times a day, right? It's, there's got to be some intelligence between the patient and the doctor, which means, again, more algorithms and, and being very sensitive to taking feedback from doctors to tune those things. Um, <clears throat> already you know, being more comfortable with, with assistive technology. I, I, I don't like, I'm not a huge fan of, of people who talk about, you know, replacing doctors in certain mm-hmm. aspects, the ways that I've seen AI be really, really helpful, both in healthcare and also in other areas is finding ways to do the really tedious, irritating parts to surface the information that you need as a human to make a decision. Mm-hmm. And so um, just as a simple example of that, we've been working on technology at UCSF that automatically processes the 1.4 million faxes that come into UCSF every year and classifying them. So, you know, is it a referral? Is it a medication request? Is it a request for medical equipment? Is it something else? And then from there, extracting information from the document. So, you know, what is the patient's name? What is the request? Who should it go to? And um, so, you know, that, that is, that's more affecting people who are doing sort of front office stuff, right? That referral comes in, someone enters it into a system. Right now, there's a lot of manual steps. Well, where does it hit the, the clinician? One of the things we're finding is we're starting to be able to index these PDFs and know what's in them. So, oh, here's, here are labs. Here's a, you know, here's a consult from another doctor. Those historical images in a patient's chart are very, very difficult and time consuming for doctors to mm-hmm. find. So it's in the chart maybe, mm-hmm. but, but it's going to be very hard to find it. 
if we can use algorithms to surface the things that are most relevant to an encounter at any time, um, that saves the clinician time. They learn to navigate that very quickly. So the, 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 the skill change becomes, you know, navigating this, this extract from the chart in addition to their normal activities. So there's, yeah, there's lots of places, but I, I, I look to augment people as opposed to, you know, replace their activities. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if you will, I'll make a little analogy. Um, you know, a number of years ago, you know, when, when airplanes were first created, you know, they you know, always fly by wire is what they would call it. Uh, you know, when it was basically the pilot was always in control, you know, of everything, you know, it was mostly analog, you know, and as things change, you know, things more like autopilot came in and other things, you know, it, I think if you talk to a lot of pil older pilots, especially the, say, the newer pilots, you know, they're not as good per se, because they might not have that, you know, experience of really being in full control of your airplane. You know, I, I guess the similar, I'd have a simple, similar question with uh, physicians is, um, you know, will physicians become overwhelmed with all of the data and tools and algorithms that are at their uh, disposal and becoming more reliant on them and not building up, uh, you know, a, cl a certain clinical int intuition, if you will. Yeah, well, again, it, it's a great question, and it's it's a real it's a real concern. I think, um, <clears throat> in terms of uh, being overwhelmed, I think clinicians are overwhelmed today. Uh, just the sheer amount of information and sort of administrative activities that they have to deal with on a daily basis that aren't that are sort of one level or or one degree or more uh, abstracted from the actual patient and, and decision-making. So what, what I've seen again, you know, in, in the, in the world of augmenting um, identifying and surfacing information that's relevant to a, a decision-making process or providing care doesn't, doesn't generally re, you know, sort of dull the, the clinician's diagnostic senses. Um, there are, there are places where there, you know, where I, I can imagine risks. If suppose, suppose you need to, and I've actually seen this um, in practice, it, it's often necessary to be very, very careful about what medications you're prescribing and make sure that they're not conflicting with other medications that, that have been described, prescribed by others. And so if, if a clinician is expecting to be just alerted that there's uh, a risk of a new, let's say I want to prescribe uh, a new, uh, you know, I can give you a very specific example. Patients on antipsychotic drugs cannot have potassium supplements because essentially the, the digestion slows down and the potassium supplement can more or less bore a hole in the patient's uh, intestines. It's a bad outcome. And so, um, you can have two clinicians, a mental health provider and a, and a primary care independently providing these things. Yes, an algorithm will detect that those two things are bad together. It's known. However, you wouldn't want a clinician to not ask the relevant questions because they're assuming some computer system uh, is going to catch that for them. Now, on the other hand, that what's interesting is generally most computer systems don't know what different um, 
you know, what, what's been prescribed by different systems unless that question's been asked. So you, you really need, you really need clinicians in, in areas of safety, especially to, to continue to be vigilant. But I would argue that if they don't have to spend a lot of time digging through the chart to find that one darn lab that they were looking for, they probably have more time for focused cognitive activities and they still do need to uh, still need to do their own diagnostic and, and sort of care process. Mm-hmm. So, so far I haven't seen any major, uh, major risks, but it's, um, you know, actually there's another example I'll just bring up really mm-hmm. quickly. Uh, the, the, the critical care suite, this, this first ever FDA cleared mm-hmm. AI, it looks for, it looks for these emerging conditions in chest x-rays in the ICU but what, the, what it does is it actually moves the image to the top of the radiology queue so that a patient who's going to, you know, potentially die in 10 minutes, um, normally an x-ray that's labeled stat spends hours in the radiology queue. So when you move these images to the top of the queue and flag them as having something that's been detected, the radiologist can read them using their own, their own skill set and take action very, very mm-hmm. quickly. They're still going to read all the images that, you know, that come mm-hmm. through th- throughout the day, but, but it really, it creates a workflow advantage mm-hmm. as opposed to a, you know, a cognitive shift in the way the radiologist is reading the report. So I think that's a really nice example of how you can augment without, without sort of dulling the senses of the clinicians. So what effectively is going to happen is you're going to actually streamline the, the rather mundane parts of the process and allow people to put more of their focus on where, you know, the, the actual, the physician can do better uh, than a machine. You know, and, and Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great way to put it. That's, that's exactly what we want to do. And um, you know, the, the, certainly the kinds of things that I focus on, but I think that's really where we're seeing traction in general. In, in care, not just because that's what physicians would rather pay for, but because that's really where the value is. So kind of going with that idea of um, you know, learning how to kind of integrate these tools to um, you know, make their work more efficient, um, what skills or experience will you know, people in the healthcare space, whether they're physicians or, or whatnot, you know, need to develop? I think the, the biggest, uh, the biggest piece of it is going to be, there's a lot of infrastructure needs that, um, and, and, you know, this is partly where beekeeper is going to come in, you know, making it possible to access data. There's a lot of plumbing, even in, in the world of beekeeper, there's plumbing that needs to be more facile to connect up the hoses of data that need to be connected to different algorithms. Um, and so, uh, that's a that's an area where health systems are going to need to in, continue to invest digital. I mean, it's kind of a dumb thing to say, but digital transformation is going to require more access to data and more facile access to data. Um, you know, even even within the four walls of like a beekeeper enclave. Um, the other the other thing is, I think going back to my somewhat uh, snarky comment about. The, the physician who told me, you know, we tried AI and it didn't work. I think there, what, that was a, that was a sort of, you know, that was expressing a, 
a sort of lack of understanding of exactly what we're talking about, right? Okay, what did you mean by AI? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a whole bunch of different ways of doing things that are very data dependent, but also interact nicely with workflow. So the big shifts in terms of how people think about things are gonna be around how do you think about data? How do you think about what data you're collecting? How you interact with technologies and build them into workflows so that the default thinking is not, oh, this is a tricky problem. Let's hire somebody to do it manually and and elevate to the next thing of, oh, this is a tricky problem. Let's figure out what data we have to understand how to automate it. And if we don't have it, let's start collecting it. So the healthcare system starts to think it as you know, sort of first class digital citizens. And we're mm-hmm. really seeing this take off at UCSF. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's really exciting as we've had these these wins in AI, uh, both you know, the clinical stuff like detecting stuff in X-rays, but also the operational stuff in making facts processing more and more automatic. People are realizing, oh, this is what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for this amorphous, like, oh, I need an, a sentient being figuring out how to solve healthcare. I need a dumb little bot that can figure out that this particular document is about this patient or about this activity. And all of a sudden, everyone's doing it. And everyone's coming to me and saying, hey, I was thinking we should be collecting this data, or we should we should think about automating this. And it's very exciting. So it's, it's happening now, and it will just continue to happen over the next few years. Mm-hmm. And as far as the skills that you would need to, I guess, partake, partake in this, this revolution, what, what would those be? And for someone who's just kind of starting out in this field? Yeah. So, I mean, if, if you know, it depends on data, data scientists, of course, have a, a, in healthcare, the most important data science skills are around natural language understanding everything we're doing. I mean, yeah, there's a really cool computer vision component to finding tumors and chest x-rays, but um, on the operational side, especially where you're talking really about care delivery more, more, um, you know, where it's going to impact more intimately, um, natural language understanding is a huge, a huge um, piece of it. And that technology is just exploding right now. So there's just a whole abundance of interesting new things to learn and, and, and get good at. So on that's for that area for, um, you know, people who are, it's interesting. We've been seeing a transformation at UCSF as we go through this digital transformation, there's a transformation to go from thinking about projects, like let's implement this technology. Oh, let's Mm -hmm. do this, this standard to more like almost like products or capabilities where you're thinking about, okay, what is the problem we're trying to solve? How do we build all the component parts to get that, to have that ability be reusable within the health system? And so there's a, there's a sort of a, a bigger role for product thinking, like product, classic traditional product management mm-hmm. and agile. So mm-hmm. people who are doing operational stuff, it's agile, it's very... Um, you know, sort of product development centric, very much like, much more like software product development than it used to be very, you know, sort of more IT project centric. Um, uh, other, you know, for, for clinicians, it's really, I mean, I'm, I work with 
a whole range of clinicians from, you know, Luddite clinicians who can very easily still benefit from some of the, you know, some of the, the, the tools that make it less tedious to use information in the EHR all the way up to clinician informaticists and AI experts who are building the models and thinking about, thinking about how to build the next thing. All of it is just, the big shift is just kind of seeing, accepting that there's, that there's going to be new tools coming into the workflow, but that they don't have to be disruptive to the workflow. Mm-hmm. So it's not exactly a skill, it's more like an outlook, but, mm-hmm. but all part of that digital first thing. And of course, in my opinion, as a data scientist, everyone should know Python as a programming language. Like I'm trying to get my mom, she's 89, trying to get her to learn Python. I don't think it's going to happen, but I'd love, everyone should know Python. The all around language, right? Yes, absolutely. I'm a big fan. Very good. Well, Bob, I appreciate this today. This has been seriously informative. Um, Beekeepers, really a revolutionary technology that's going to just, it's going to be interesting to see what is going to happen now that that comes out. Thank you. Yeah, no, uh, thank you very much and uh, appreciate the chance to uh, talk about it with some really thoughtful questions. And it's been a great pleasure to be here. I hope your audience really enjoys the discussion. And of course, I encourage them to reach out to me uh, if, if they'd like to, to learn more. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Bob. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Smart Healthcare Podcast, and I really hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to hear past episodes, you can find them on our website at www.smarthealthcarepodcast.com. Additionally, you can follow us on Twitter at SmartHCP to stay up to date with the latest episodes. So until next time, stay smart.